0: Jesus, thank you for today, this chance to explore this really strange book about you. As we wrestle with some of the ideas today, as we wrestle with how to read this book, as we wrestle with probably some of our own past and our own trauma and our own baggage and our own um, beautiful ideas, like all the things that we bring into this process, would we uh, I don't know, just maybe find some humility and some creativity and some wisdom to discern together, to wrestle together, and to walk out on the other side, maybe with some skills and some tools to read your story well, and would it lead us to a deeper understanding of who you are? feels like the biggest thing I could hope for is that we'd see you more at the end of the day. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... I want to start with just two big foundational ideas or two big assumptions, and then we'll sort of work through those throughout the rest of the time in a big set of different ideas. But here's the big foundational ideas. As we talk about the Bible, and I think as we even set up some of the difficulties we have about talking about the Bible, and here's the first one. I believe, and I think most like Christians throughout time would also believe that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to the world. The text that I have referenced here is Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, where the writer of Hebrews is describing that in the past, God spoke through prophets and different writings, but in this moment, God has spoken through his son, who is the supreme revelation of his image. And so at like a very basic theological level, we believe that if we want to understand anything about God, if we want to know who God is, if we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know what God acts like, we look to Jesus. And everything else has to be compared and contrasted to that image of who Jesus is. So what we see, and we'll work through this even more in the next couple of minutes, but as we look at Jesus's life and Jesus's work, that's the supreme and ultimate image of God. Everything else is lesser than that or less intense as that. So that's the big idea, number one, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Here is the second idea. And this is the way the biblical writers talk about the Bible itself is it all scripture, is God breathed. That phrase, God breathed, is often translated inspired. So if you've heard the phrase inspired, that's where that comes from. The Greek is theonoustos, which literally means God breathed it. I like that word more, God breathed, and we'll see why in a bit. I think it's a bit more dynamic um, and speaks to the way in which God does things in the world. But you have these two ideas, that Jesus is the ultimate and supreme revelation of God to the world, and that the text that we have that comprise our Bible is inspired. But I think this leads to a very serious difficulty for us as followers of Jesus. If we believe both of these things to be true, at least for me, it leads to a massive issue, which is how can the Bible how can the Bible be both about Jesus and inspired by God when it contains content messages and ideas that so directly violate our understanding of who God is right how can the bible be both about Jesus how can the image of Jesus be the supreme revelation of God to the world and then this book that we say is inspired breathed by God contains so many understandings that seem to violate how we think about Jesus and I think that image that question is like for me The conundrum that has led to like the the purpose of this class, but has led to so much of my own like Christian journey and deconstruction is that the things that I find in the Bible seem to so confront and violate and challenge the person of Jesus, whether that's the violence of the Old Testament narratives, whether that's like even things like the animal sacrifices of the law, whether it's the way that women are talked about in the Bible, whether it's the way that um, slavery is talked about in the Old Testament, that these things seem so different in the person of Jesus that I see in the New Testament and that I understand in church tradition and that I see walking around the gospels. And even that I see like later New Testament writers talking about, uh, even though sometimes those things seem to fall short of the person of Jesus. And so how do you hold those two ideas together? And I think, um, I think it's something like this. This is a story that I was thinking about that I think is a good illustration of this. Um, some of you in this class know my wife. Um, her name is Tori. She's a delightful human being. Uh, she's very fun and she's very kind, right? She's like a very kind human being. And if I saw her like walking on the street one day and say she didn't see me, like but I see her walking on the street, she's like a handful of steps ahead of me and she doesn't see me. And I watch her about to walk up to like a, a man on the street asking for money. And I like see this interaction about to take place. Like I have a set of assumptions about what I think is going to happen. Like because I know my wife, I think what's gonna happen is that she will be kind, that she would like say hello, that she might give some money, that she might have a conversation, that she might like engage with another person like a human being. But what if instead of any of those things, Tori kicked the dude over took the money that he had and just ran away. Like, what would I do with that image in my head? Because that, what I just witnessed, which I really saw, right? Like I really saw that image take place. I really saw that event take place. So violates who I believe my wife to be and who I believe that my wife is and how her character has been demonstrated to me over like decades of time together. That like, I would... I would have to do some work to understand what happened in that moment. And I feel like there's a, there's a few options, like, but my first, my gut reaction, if I saw Tori do those things, would be to wrestle and try to understand why she did those things or how that thing makes sense in light of who I know her to be. And I think that in the same way that I would wrestle with, what I just witnessed Tori do because it so denies her character that as we, people who want to read the Bible or want to understand the Bible, we have kind of the same work to do because we see these moments in the biblical narrative that are like that, that it's like Tori kicking a dude over and taking his money. It's like God kicking over a person as opposed to loving that person and caring for that person. And it, so denies the character of God that we see in Jesus that we have some work to do. And I think that because Jesus's character is so good, like my wife's character is so good, we actually have to wrestle. Like, I think that if we don't wrestle with the violent images or the misogynistic images or the difficult to hold images of the Bible— that I don't know that we're doing credit to how good Jesus is revealed to be in the New Testament. Like that if we can just so easily smash those two images together, I don't know, that feels really difficult for me to hold. Like those two that you could just so easily smash those two images together. And I think that like I owe it to Tori to wrestle if I saw her do that, it's almost like we owe it to the goodness of Jesus that we see to wrestle because that contradiction is so stark um, and it doesn't make any sense. And it makes more sense for us to try to figure out what is the issue going through those things as opposed to um, what's playing out just so simply. So I think those two ideas, right, that the, Jesus is the ultimate image of God and that the Bible is inspired leads us to this kind of conflict. And like we do with, um, like I would have to with my wife. I need to with, um, I need to with God. So that's for me, I think what motivates me in this, this work uh, and what has led us to the preparation of this class. But before we go any further, I was, I was going to open it up and say, if anybody wants to share, you don't have to, but I was interested to see, like, is there anybody else here who has um, some questions on their mind or some reasons that they feel motivated to be, uh, to do this class? Um, I feel like I just,
1: like, I feel like there's been some points where I've sort of understood or like maybe got an answer about like, you know, the, the stark differences between, um, different moments in the Bible and that kind of go against the character of Jesus. And there's been explanations, but I just don't feel like there's been like a mm. thorough or like deep understanding. And that's something that I've wanted to learn.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: Hello? Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Yeah, I think one thing that I was thinking about when you say, like, these parts that go against what we know about the character of God, I think I struggle with that because then that means that I already have an assumption of what the character of God is like. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to say what the primary character of God is and to feel like I'm prioritizing certain parts of the Bible over others by saying that. Hmm.
0: Oh, interesting. So there's a question, Is a thing that feels tricky in that, like how to know what to prioritize versus other things? Um. Or like?
2: Yeah, well, I guess, how do we understand the character of God? If like, you know, those things that you listed that we think are against the character of God are obviously in the Bible.
3: Hmm.
2: And I feel like, Yeah, I grew up in the church and the church tells me like, God is this, this, and that. And so in my head, I, I already have an assumption of, oh, this is the character of God. But then if I were to come across the Bible totally without the influence of growing up in church, I really wonder what I believe would be the character of God as described in the Bible.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. That makes a lot of sense.
4: And I guess I'm I'm familiar with the word hermeneutics um, from some courses that I took, um, actually here in the Episcopal Church. But it's uh, it's a term that sort of means like your own, what you bring to reading the Bible, um, as I understand it, your own cultural background, your own um, political ideas, and so I'm interested in the part of the Jesus bringing Jesus into that Mm. um, idea and. So I'm really curious how. Um, well, I'm just interested in talking about that word hermeneutics and how um, how our own um, views sort of like um, the woman before me said influence kind of where we are today.
0: Sure, that's great. Well, I think that is actually a really good segue. Those two, those three questions are actually a really good segue into. Um, the next part of this moment. So I'm going to break the class into just big ideas. And then we'll discuss around those big ideas. If I feel like if you feel like I miss anything, or I'm not hitting a question, well, feel free to ask it, or we'll try to create space to ask questions. But just these by these four big ideas that will hopefully structure the time together. And here's the first one, which gets especially to um, how do we uh, how do we decide what priorities of God that we hold? And how do we bring Jesus into the text with us. How do we see the text through Jesus? So here's my first big idea. um, that The God on the cross is the God of the Bible and all other images and actions need to be compared, contrasted and wrestled with in light of Jesus, the sacrificial and loving death. So I don't know that I could, I think that at the end of the day, this is the most important question or the most important idea of of the time that we have together. Even though I think in some ways it is the most obvious. Um, Like we've heard this before, probably we've like talked about Jesus on the cross many, many times. But what we see in the text, so what we saw in the Hebrew passage, um, what we also see in Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the ultimate image of God. Uh, John 1 says that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who is God, has made him known. So Jesus is the ultimate image of God. And then that goes to Rebecca's question, which is like, well, so even in understanding who Jesus is, what about Jesus is revealing who God is, or what about Jesus' character is helping us understand that more? And the argument that I would like to make, and I think that the Bible writers themselves make, is that if you're looking for a a poignant snapshot to try to encapsulate as much of the person of Jesus as possible and as much of the character of God as possible, the image that we look to is the cross. I think a good argument for this comes in Philippians chapter two verses six through eight. So this is Paul, the apostle is writing to a church at Philippi and says this, he's talking about the person of Jesus and he's basing a bunch of theological work on this. So Paul is going to like make a bunch of arguments and it's kind of going to come back to this, this like palm, this theological statement over and over and over again. And this is what Paul says in Philippians two, verse six through eight, Jesus, who, because he is in the very nature of God, Like that statement alone is massive. Jesus, because he is in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what Paul is arguing in this passage in Philippians 2, verse 6, 8, is that it is God's very nature to take on the form of a servant, to take on the form of the cross. That's not a denial of who God is. It's not an anomaly of God's character. It's not some weird thing God does despite all the other ways that God operates. That it's actually who God is, is the God that we see displayed on the cross. This is how God operates. The language in Um, Greek, I think is helpful. It's kenosis, which means to empty, that God empties himself taking on the form of a servant, Um, that God, or sometimes the translation will say condescends, that God steps low, that that's always the way that God is. And that's God's character. And that's the the expression of God. And so if we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus on the cross. And what does Jesus on the cross reveal? A God who empties himself, a God who takes on the form of a servant, a God who endures the cross, who takes in the hostility of the world around them, as opposed to giving back hostility to the world. Um, So the cross reveals who God is to us, both who and what God is like. Here's a quote from a very famous uh, German theologian named Karl Barth, that says this, which I really like, God is never more fully God, than in the powerlessness and humiliation of the cross. That's such a heavy statement to me. God is never more fully God than in the powerlessness and humiliation of the cross. Far from contradicting divine omnipotence, the cross supremely reveals it. Nothing demonstrates more fully that the cross than the cross how great is the omnip- omnipotence of God's love. So, Bart is saying that if you want to know what God's character is like, if you want to know who God is like, even God's power, that the cross is not a contradiction of how God works. It's not a contradiction of God's power. It's not a contradiction of God's nature. It is actually the very supreme expression of it that this is what God is like, cross shaped and sacrificial. Similarly, um, another theologian, Greg Boyd, says this is how God works, that the cross reveals that God's power is altogether different from the coercive. Power humans have lusted after throughout history and that they have habitually projected onto God. The point that Boyd is making is that we often want to elevate um, other kinds of power, violent power, coercive power, is the way that Boyd talks about it, over sacrificial gestures of power. And we project those images onto God, but if we actually want to know who God is, we look at the cross, which is sacrificial, deeply loving, and that is the chief revelation of who God is. So that gets us back to this very first idea, which I'm just going to go back to for a second, which is that the God on the cross is the God of the Bible. All images and actions need to be compared, contrasted, and wrestled with in light of Jesus's sacrificial and loving death. So in light of that, let me ask you a question really fast. How does that speak to your understanding of God? Does that challenge how you think of God? Does it offer something new? Does it offer something refreshing? Does that say anything to the way that you understand or think about God?
5: Um, I think it makes like a lot of sense to me, just viewing through the person of Jesus. Um, I think for some reason, my first thought is kind of like we get to view it through the person of Jesus where we're at in time a thousand years later. <clears throat> it makes me maybe because of our Bible reading plan and where we're at reading it is like all old Testament right now. So it kind of makes me wonder like how the people during the time of the old Testament could view God in the same way without maybe mm. as clearly knowing the person of Jesus or having yeah. that that's a great question anybody else feel
0: like this idea um either brings a question to mind or offers some kind of challenge to the way that you think about God or is maybe surfacing any new ideas
1: I kind of I have a question I think for me it's like um if like God is all-powerful like then why why did God Himself have to do that, or why did God Himself, you know, want to do that, have to do that,
0: have to uh, endure did the cross? He, yeah, yeah. Did he have uh, to do that? You know. Oh, dude. What? So those are. That's. I'm both. What Nate just asked and what Walker asked. I think are really. I'm not trying to like not answer them. I think those are really good questions that kind of lead us to something else here. So I'm just going to keep going. And then if I don't, if you don't feel like you get a succinct answer, just remember it and ask me again at the end and we'll, we'll get back to it. But I think it, it leads to this next idea, which is this, that the God on the cross is the God of the Bible. There is, that's the, that's the supreme ultimate revelation of God, according to the biblical authors. Now, what does that mean for us? And here's big idea. Number two, that God acts towards and with people. In a cruciform, which just means cross shaped way, that the cross is the way that God acts in the world. So we want to understand who God is, we want to understand how God acts, we look at the cross. And what do we see on the cross? This is another quote from theologian Greg Boyd. The cross reveals that God's power is precisely God's loving willingness to be profoundly impacted by others. And to suffer at the hands of for the sake of others. So here's where this gets to Walker's question. Um, God, I believe uh, that God creates humans with free will. And that to truly love humans means to respect the agents that God made them to be. And so God has to respect, I think, even give space to what it means to be humans. I also believe that because God is the God that we see on the cross, that God is not coercive. So God won't like forcefully do something that would violate the free will of human beings or that would forcefully accomplish their divine purpose. So instead what we see on the cross is a God who is so loving and so generous in nature in person that they accommodate into their very being, the free will of people in the work of redemption. So I don't think that like, for example, to Walker's question of the cross, like sometimes there's a there's a debate when we talk about like Judas, like does Judas forced to kill Jesus or to, to sell Jesus for crucifixion? I would argue no, that, that, that God never forces people to do something, that God isn't coercively acting on behalf of people, that instead God accommodates their divine plan, their divine purpose by sacrificially loving, that God will always make space for the actions of the people around them And love them. And then God will, I think, because God is so big and so powerful and so capable, God will uh, judo move those negative intentions into redemption, right? So it's like the force of Judas Iscariot. And the fear of Judas and the hatred of Rome and the destructive power of the religious entities is thrust upon Jesus. And Jesus does not coerce that doesn't force that does not make that happen instead, because God is so big and loving, God sacrificially absorbs all of that into himself and judo moves it into redemption that Jesus absorbs all the hostility of Rome and then unmasks it as weak and powerless in the resurrection, right? Like, so God is towards people in this cruciform way of accommodating the free will of people in the work of redemption. Um, And here's a here's a really beautiful example of this outside of the Jesus story. This is not just happening in the New Testament; it's happening all throughout the biblical narrative. Here's one of my favorite examples. Comes in Genesis fifty verse twenty, and this is the story of like the twelve brothers selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt and they like have this experience with Joseph and they're like, oh, crazy, this dude's gonna kill us because we sold him into slavery. And this is what Joseph said. It says, you intended to harm me and you did harm me. Like Joseph isn't denying that he was harmed. The dude's literally sold into slavery, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so it's like these brothers enact violence. They sell Joseph into slavery. God absorbs that action, accommodates the action, allows for that action to happen because God will not force free-willed agents to do anything, but then redeems that action into something that is good and beautiful. Uh, The saving of many lives. Israel's life is saved by the fact that Joseph is sold into slavery. Uh, And the cross is just the biggest, most beautiful example of that. But there's so many different moments that are happening throughout the biblical narrative that do that, great. So we're laying some foundation here. So what we've seen is that the God on the cross is the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is sacrificial, loving, non-coercive, absorbs hostility into themselves. And God acts that way towards people, that God is that way in the world, that God is cruciform towards the people around them. Now, this leads to uh, big idea number three. Um, Okay, here we go. Big idea number three. Uh, We all have imperfect understandings of God, but God wants us to see clearly and is at work revealing more of God's self to us. And this brings us back to some of the things that, uh, the questions that Nate was asking. Um, And here's a few examples of this from the biblical narrative, just to give us a sense of what this means. But as it is as as an indi- it's like an introduction. The people who are writing the Bible and, in, and us included, we do not have perfect images or perfect understandings of God. And I think that is like, we know that to be true. But if we don't have perfect images and understandings of God, I think it also means that we fill in some of the gaps with some of our own images. So we'll see this play out in a second. But here's the first passage Hosea 2, verse 16. God speaks through a prophet and says, Someday declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. Now, God is still speaking into a world in this moment that is like it's the ancient Near East. It is a deeply patriarchal society, so I'm not trying to deny that in this moment. But you can see that Israel has an image of God, of master, and this grieves God, that God wants a different kind of image, a different kind of relationship with the people of Israel. And the language or the images or the understandings that are used is husband and master. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament makes a similar point. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 12, a pretty famous passage that comes with the passage on love. Paul says, now we see your reflection in a mirror, but then we will see you face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Paul talks about that there's a growing understanding that needs to happen in the Christian life. And here's the one that I think is most interesting. This is Psalm 50 verse 21. God speaks again through the psalmist and says, "When you, Israel, did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you." So this is a fascinating moment because we know that we've we've said and shown in these earlier passages that Israel and even us, can have limited understandings of God. We can have limited imaginations for God. But what this moment shows us is that in those limited understandings, we can also project onto God false understandings. So Israel, God's people, has a mixture of good, right, healthy images of God that are revealed to Israel throughout time, um, and also some bad ones. And we believe that if you're, if you're reading your Old Testament, like Nate and Sydney are doing, you'll see that there's there's like moments where Israel gets a snapshot, a clearer image of who God is. So you have, let's go to the very beginning, Genesis chapter three. Eve gets a promise that she'll have a child that will fix the world. But it is so vague. It doesn't have that much content. There's no one named, there's so little clarity. You go to first Samuel chapter eight. Hundred, a couple hundred years later, and all of a sudden we know about Jesus, that Jesus will be a king. We know that Jesus is coming through a certain line and a certain dynasty, will look and do certain things. So this revelation that Israel is receiving advances or progresses over time and gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Paul says the same thing in First Corinthians, that we see in a mirror dimly lit, but someday we'll see even brighter. So we're going to see clearer. And in the meantime, we bring some negative images to God. And because God is non-coercive and cruciform and doesn't always force us into a new understanding, we actually take those images and think that God is like us. I, Because I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. Um, and here, let me show you, these are some Here's a question that this brings. So if we bring both good and bad images to God, and those good and bad images are recorded in the biblical narrative or whatever, what does God do with our bad understanding and our bad images? And I think this gets us to a handful of really interesting biblical examples, which will both start to get us into how do we read our Bible and start to bring some of these pieces together. So here's a fascinating example from Jesus talking in Mark chapter 10, verse 4. Religious leaders come to Jesus and they said, Moses allowed a man to divorce, to write a divorce certificate and divorce his wife. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. What an interesting moment. So the law of God, the Torah, this like divinely revealed, divinely inspired thing that Moses gives to the people of Israel. Jesus is saying actually accommodates the sinfulness of Israel, that Israel has bad understandings, bad images of God. And God does not fully update those, totally force those things to change. That God actually accommodates those things in the law, allows them to write a certificate of divorce. But then Jesus comes along and presses it even further. So as our understanding of God has progressed, so also our understanding of the way of God. Those things are progressing with time, and Jesus was revealing more about those things in this moment. But when the law is given, it's accommodating unyielding hearts or hard hearts. And that is in the Torah. Like we read that and nowhere in the Torah, this is its own thing, nowhere in the Torah does it say, this is because you're unyielding. We don't learn that until we get to Jesus. How interesting is that? Here's another one that I love. This is this is a fascinating example that gets us back to so many of the conversations we were having earlier. So this is from 1 Samuel 8, which is the, the passage I referenced in terms of we learn more about Jesus. So 1 Samuel 8, verse 4 through 7 all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Samuel is serving as a judge of Israel and a prophet at this moment. And they said to him, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, this is a fascinating moment because... This is a fascinating moment because if you read the Bible, God is intended to be Israel's king. They're supposed to be set up as like a really, really special theocracy with God actually governing at the top of them. And they're not supposed to have like a kingly leader over them. The judges that they receive in the book of Judges are like interim leaders because Israel is hard of heart. And at the end of Judges, Israel comes to Samuel and ask for a king. And what does God do with their requests? He accommodates it. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God's divine intentions. It is a rejection of the way that God is planning and hoping and desiring to do things in the world. And God accommodates it, allows it to happen, and doesn't just accommodate or allows it. God makes it a centerpiece of the redemption story. Jesus returns. We talk, we talk about Jesus as a king. That's an accommodation. This is crazy. That's an accommodation to Israel rejecting God. How wild is that? So Jesus as this God as cruciform, who always absorbs the hostility, the bad intentions, the, the sinfulness, the infallibility, the brokenness of the people around, sorry, fallibility, the brokenness of the people around them accommodates to that brokenness accommodates to that um, sinfulness accommodates those small images and those small imaginations and then uses them as a part of his divine plan Israel has limited or even wrong images about God in this moment they want to be like the nations around them they are projecting onto God and to Israel other identities from the nations around them and yet God, uses it. And that doesn't mean that God likes it, right? Samuel is displeased. And so he prays to the Lord. And God says that he is being rejected in this moment. Like that's not, that's not even like a, he's not approving of being rejected as king. He's not like saying this is a great thing to have happened that I celebrate being rejected as king. But I believe that God is non-coercive. And so instead of Coercively changing Israel, violently opposing Israel, forcing them to think different. God respects these free agents in love, but then Judo moves Israel's negative intentions into redemption. God accommodates, uses, and redeems the work of people for the plan of redemption. And that narrative makes it into the Bible. And so when we're reading about the kingship of Jesus in the New Testament, that's what we're reading is this God accommodating the sin of Israel and Judo moving it into redemption. So let me stop there for a second. Um, Cause that was maybe the biggest set of new ideas that have come in. Um, any, any questions beginning to surface, any thoughts beginning to surface that we should take a second to name or ponder.
1: I had a question. Um, I think it was answered, but the, like the question was um, like other images of God's sacrificial, sacrificial love or like examples of that in the Old Testament, which I think you just showed a few, but, um, but yeah, that was my question.
0: Yeah. So the, so the question is, are there other images of God being a God of sacrificial love in the Old yeah. Testament? Yeah. Like are right? there other yeah. images
1: of the cross in the Old Testament?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Walker. Anybody have any thoughts before I just jump into that? I'd love to hear if anybody sees any that come to their mind before I jump in. One um, one that is very common um, and that takes on a lot of significance is Abraham and Isaac and the scapegoat, um, that God provides a scapegoat for Abraham and Isaac. And that moment is really fascinating. So in terms of even the conversation that we're having right now, it's a good test case for um, small images of God or even wrong images of God and then God redeeming those images. So in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon to believe in a deity or a set of deities that would require child sacrifice or animal sacrifice or big massive sacrifice in order to ask for something. It's not that uncommon. Um, And so all of a sudden we have this moment Where Israel believes, or Abraham at this point, the precursor to Israel believes that God is asking for that. Now, I think we have to wrestle with what do we do with that? Because does asking for a child sacrifice correspond to the person that we see in Jesus? I think that's a very good question. But what happens when we get to the end of the Abraham story, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac? Oh, God provides a scapegoat so that. Abraham does not sacrifice Isaac. And so then the redemption narrative is that we may have projected onto God these images of violence and coercion that you need to satiate my wrath. And then instead, God provides through themselves a vehicle to satiate their wrath. And so then Abraham has a very different understanding of who their God is versus the gods of like the Babylonian cultures around them or the, the Philistine cultures around them or the Egyptian cultures that they're going to emerge into where they're telling a lot of these stories. Like their image of God is really challenged by this story of someone who provides a sacrifice as opposed to demanding one, right? So there's like, there's in my mind, a really beautiful moment of God being cruciform in the old Testament um, and also non-coercive like non-forcing Abraham to do something that is such a denial of their own way of thinking. And another example of God being non-coercive is just that like ancient Israel doesn't understand science. And so like all throughout the Bible, there's some science in there that you're like, what? Like ancient Israel believed Um, that the earth looked like this. This is a really good drawing. These are the pillars of the earth that are written about all throughout the biblical narrative. They believe that there's pillars of the earth that the world stands on. And underneath there is the great Leviathan who like hangs out. I drew a Leviathan. There's a great Leviathan here who hangs out there. And then they believe that there is a dome or rakah, over the earth, and that it opens so that it can rain. They believe that. That's their understanding of the world. Now, if we believe that God created the world, even using science to do it, like like evolution, whatever we believe, we know that God knows that's not how the world works. And yet God does not challenge that in them. God doesn't update Israel's scientific understanding. God accommodates their scientific understanding and uses it to reveal more about God's self. So Genesis one and two, um, I don't believe that's trying to argue for like a scientific creation account. I believe it's trying to make a theological argument in light of the other images that God's have around Israel. But God doesn't use that moment to start teaching Israel about um, evolution or molecular physics or uh, like you know basic cosmology. Doesn't update any of those things. Instead, uses them to teach the thing that God is most interested in teaching, which is more about God's self. That God is revealing God's self to God's people. And is progressing and updating and challenging that image and what it looks like to be God's people and the ethics of God's people, all to reveal more of Jesus. And that's the concern. And if that's the concern, then when we read Genesis 1 and 2, well, we have a really beautiful story about God. So those are those are two different Walker. Sorry, I, I went a little longer than I thought. But those are two different images to me that come to my mind where God acts this way that I think you can see more clearly. Yeah, oh, sure. you know, I just thought of, I just thought of a third one. I'm gonna I'm gonna nail this third one real fast. Um, so um, the sacrificial system in ancient Israel, like we Israel Israel has a temple system. They have a sacrificial system of animals. And here's one where I'm not even, this is not one that we would have to be creative about. Um, What is the passage? Let me figure it out real fast. Uh, Before I forget, uh, Hebrews, shadow of things to come. Can you see what I'm doing?
1: Great. Yes, I can.
0: Great, perfect. Uh, Okay, yeah, so Hebrews 10.1. So let's go, let me go back here real fast. So this is an amazing moment. So the writer of Hebrews says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? What? This is a crazy statement for a person who's writing the Bible to say about Israel's like central practices. He's like, why were you, or she, or whoever's writing this is like, why'd you write these? Like, why did you do these things? They they cannot cleanse you. They're a shadow of the things to come. Uh, because if they worked, the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. It is written about me on this scroll. I have come to do your will. And then it goes on to say, he's like explaining this, the writer of Hebrews is explaining this. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will in verse nine. He sets aside the first, the first covenant, the law of sacrifices to establish the second. And by that will you have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So here's this moment where Israel has this practice, they do all the time. And God is using that practice to get to something way beyond the practice, get to Jesus. And the practice in and of itself is not cleansing or purifying, which is exactly what Israel believed that it was doing. Um, that's That's another moment where you're like, that was a shadow of something, a small revelation, a small understanding that a lot of things had to be expanded and pressed into.
6: Um, Johnny, I commented in the chat as well. I think, like, very similar. Sorry. To the sac- no, I was gonna say very similar to the sacrificial system that you just described, I think is um the temple itself also being an opportunity to see the way that God both stoops down to Human level, in order to provide a way for them to be in the presence of God, and not because God needs a house or can be contained yes, within yes. it, but it's the only way that Israel really understood how to enter into sacred space. And then we see that come into fulfillment through Christ.
0: What a great example! That's a great example, like, and, and such a kind I, lo- I love that example too, because like, I think all of these examples show how kind. And God is that God is going to accommodate to the understandings that Israel has. Israel believes that you need to enter into a special house in order to in, encounter God's presence. God, exactly what Ian says, there's, God is the creator of the universe. The end of the story of the creation account is God moving into the world that they just created. They don't need a temple. But God allows that to be a vehicle through which Israel experiences God's presence because God is kind because God is loving and because God is always cruciform towards God's people. Boom. What a great, thank you
6: so much. Ian. that's a great example. Yeah. Can Can I ask a question that kind of builds on that though? It's mm-hmm. like that we're talking about, you know, what are the ways in the old Testament that we see kind of God bring is like the fulfillment of the new Testament kind of backwards, but like, are there ways that we still see this today or are there examples that we can still experience this today? And specifically with the temple, I'm kind of thinking in regards to, we know that we can, that we are always in the presence of God and we can have more intimate moments in the presence of God, you know, like in prayer, in worship, but for a lot of people and me included, and you know, one thing that has been hampered by COVID is, you know, there's like a deeper intimacy and connection with the presence of God when you're able to gather in community when you're able to gather in church when you're able to gather in, you know, for lack of a better word that, you know, our temples today. Um, do you feel like that's like kind of in that same realm or is that like something different? Does that make sense what I'm asking?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I'd be interested to hear if anybody else has any thoughts about Ian's question. Um,
6: I guess like, but in, I, I, yeah, sorry. I yeah, say like go, almost go like, you know, almost in a way like, what are the ways we see that God stoops down to our level today, the same way that he did in the Old Testament that was brought into fulfillment in Jesus and now post Jesus or current Jesus, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what is it? What, like, are there ways we still experience this today? Mm hmm.
0: I think that what the example that you just used is true. I think the church is a really good example um, where the church is a beautiful community of people called to be God's people. But I think what the church looks like is meant to change as our understanding of God changes and as our world changes. And so I think the church is an easy example to like press into what you just said, like Paul in writing letters to the church, uses the language that is really familiar to Paul to write. Like we use elderly language and we still use elder language today. Um, It's really helpful. It's really beautiful language, but it's fascinating that we do because that language is very specific to Paul's era. He's actually talking, he's like trying to use a cultural reference to say like we have elders in culture and you should establish these kind of leaders in the church. And so there's just one for one, even the phrase ecclesia, which is what church is, is a, it's like a term in Greek culture of a gathering of people And it just gets taken and applied to the church. It's a beautiful word, a great word, but it's kind of actually the church kind of redeems it. It adds religious language to it when it didn't have that before, because being church was such a unique kind of radical idea. And so I think that that still gets to be true of us as we're getting more and more radical understandings of who God is. Um, It's not as easy to diagnose. It would maybe be the one thing that's tricky about it because. The work that I get to do, the convenient thing about doing Bible work is you're going to be like, here's Israel 5,000 years ago. Here's Israel 2,000 years ago. Here's clean lines sort of to draw between those two moments. Whereas now it's like, it's not as easy to see it always or to name it so clearly. But that's, I think that's one place where it could happen. Sweet. Um, All right. Well, let's, well, there'll be more chances for questions and there's still things to get through. So let me just keep going, see where we are here. Put my notes back up. All right. So we just read the Samuel passage. This gets us to big idea number four. So we're trying to do some summary work here of the things that we've just named. So God is always the one revealed in the cross. And as such, always stoops to be with and to use the broken, strange, and foolish things to reveal himself in Jesus' and accomplish redemption. So this is really me just trying to summarize the big things that we've just named but that God is always the one revealed on the cross. So God is always the God of non-coercive self-sacrificial love. And as such, God stoops or accommodates to be with and to use what is broken, what is strange, what is foolish, what is small to reveal Jesus and accomplish redemption. Um, I think that, that, that we can show this in a few different ways. Like one in the examples that we've just used, but I think even the cross itself, the brokenness of the cross we've seen reveals God's goodness and love. And it shows that God works through things that are broken and fallible, that God accommodates to the cross, that God allows the evil violence of the people around them to affect God, to actually have a direct impact on God and Jesus, and then uses that, that broken thing, that violent thing to reveal God's great love and to accomplish redemption. And if this is true of how God works, if this is true of God on the cross, then it is true, I would argue, everywhere. It's true of what God is doing with Israel. It's true of what God is doing with the church, which I think is an easy thing to argue, that the church is the spirit-empowered, fallible people of God. Like that God is working through us, redeeming us, transforming us. In every space, um, God is working in what is broken. And that is also true of how we approach and read the Bible. That if this is true of how God works, it is also true of what the Bible is. And therefore, it should not be that surprising to us when we find, I think we should wrestle with it. We should challenge it. We should be confronted by it, but it should not be that surprising to us when we find strange, weird, or even wrong things, quote unquote, wrong things in the Bible because it is how God works everywhere. God redeems broken things to accomplish God's purpose. It's the thing that we love the most about God, that God chooses to do work in weakness. And so that's how God works everywhere. Why would that be different for how God works in the Bible, the book that is written to reveal God to us? The fact that the Bible has weird, hard things should always challenge us to wrestle because it challenges, confronts our image of God But I think it should also bring us to worship and joy because it reveals the beautiful way God is in the universe. Here's a quote from Greg Boyd, again, that I think really sums this up. We recognize the Bible's human imperfection, not as a defect, but as a reflection of its divine perfection. And its divine perfection as a reflection of its human imperfection. I love this quote, like that God is, it's the same thing the church is. It's the same thing that we are as people who've been rescued and saved, that God's perfection is revealed in our imperfection. And I think that the phrase, this is one of the reasons I really like the phrase, God breathed scripture, as opposed to some of the more like traditional, that's the God breathed is what the Greek is. But I like that phrase as opposed to inspired because breathing to me evokes like what God did in Genesis, that the spirit hovered over the surface of the water and breathes life into something, that God is non-coercively at work with people, that God participates with us, that God loves us, that God woos us, that God judo moves redemption, and that that's true of God's work in the Bible, that's true of God's work in Jesus, and that is true of what God does even with the Bible, how the Bible is. Um. Oh, I just skipped a slide. Yes. So all that to say, God is always the one revealed on the cross, and as such, always stoops to be with and to use the broken, strange, foolish things to reveal Jesus and accomplish redemption. So let me pause again there. That was our fourth big idea, and with those big ideas, we'll get to um, some kind of like. How do we read the Bible practically in the last little bit of our time? Um, But with that fourth big idea, does it start to, does any new questions begin to emerge or any new thoughts begin to emerge?
3: Uh, I have a thought. Yeah. Um, I think what that big idea to me makes me then, instead of dismissing the broken, strange, foolish things, but to pay attention to those things and to yes. maybe see that even in our own existence and our life, but in scripture, to maybe make that a priority in looking for those things and then seeing, uh, learning more about.
0: Uh, yeah. That. Sandy, I love that. I think that's so true. Like, as you, as we read things that if, if the, what you just said is so true that if, If God is always working in things that are broken and strange and different and hard for us to understand and actually using it to accomplish God's purposes, then when you come to moments in the biblical narrative that are actually very offensive, I think it is all of a sudden it's an invitation into something deeper, like a chance to worship, a chance to know the true image of God, a chance to see how God is redeeming that moment, because it is okay for it to be a violation of God. Like, we're all of a sudden okay with that. Like, the, the violence of the Old Testament doesn't have to be always—you can come to different conclusions about some of these things, but I'm just going to tell you, from me, the violence of the Bible doesn't always doesn't have to be squared with the character of God, because to me, it denies who God is. But if I am okay with it denying who God is, because I believe that God accommodates the nature of God's people and then works through it to accomplish something beautiful and redeeming and healing— then it's okay. And like Sandy said, it's an invitation into something more, to worship, to know God, to see God, to reflect on my own brokenness. Yeah. So many, all of a sudden, our reading of the Bible becomes um, way more, I think, a worshipful exercise, which is what it's supposed to be. And that actually, on that point, Sandy, that leads us, um, to the very well, actually, it leads us to a second thing I was going to say about. Um, I'm just going to jump right there about what, how do we read the Bible then? If, this, if the things that we've said are true, how does it change the way, we, sorry, how does it change the way we read the Bible? And we read the Bible for transformation before we read it for information, i.e., theologically versus historically. Now, I love historical study of the Bible. That's what my master's degree is in. So please do not hear this as like a criticism of historical critical research or um, uh, like inductive Bible study. I'm a huge fan. I love those things. I, I did too many language classes to hate it. But the Bible is not first a history book. It's not first me trying to get behind the history as though that will explain what's happening. It is first a, a theological book. And if we believe that God is is breathing while humans are acting and God is redeeming, then the history is actually going to be limited in terms of how it gets us to a a reflection on God in that sense. Um, This is another quote by Greg Boyd that I thought was really just helpful in this moment. While the historical approach subjects scripture to our questions, so it forces the Bible to answer our questions, to be doing the thing that we want it to do. A theological approach or a transformative approach seeks to enter the God-breathed realism of the biblical narrative to allow it to shape us. This gets exactly to what I think Sandy was naming. It is a possibility when we read the Bible this way. And I, and I, I you know, I think that's such an interesting thing. I think we in the American church, um, and I'm, I'm really guilty of this, we like really love information like knowing as much as possible because it's like it, there is this notion that if we can have all the right information about the biblical narrative that'll give us a sense of certainty and then like we can deal with any questions that the bible has we can argue with our friends about what the bible is but here's the truth it does not work that way there's no 100% level of certainty and and there's more opinions about the bible since the advent of historical critical research than there was before it so it's we're not getting to a cleaner place of understanding. We're getting to a more fractured place. There's more denominations than ever, right? And I don't think it's bad. Again, I love it. But if the Bible is first a worshipful activity, a reflective activity, it is a thing that brings us into contact with the living God. I think that that just that changes our orientation around what we're trying to do and gives it some life again, I think. Hey, Johnny. Ken. Yeah. I
4: think within the Bible itself, there's kind of an example of what you're a little bit of what you're talking about in in the four Gospels, where uh, although they're all conveying historical information, John takes you know a whole different approach, different theological approach, highlights different things than than the three Synoptic Gospels, and even Luke takes you know highlights. Uh, support for women and for the poor more than Mm. Matthew does for example so Mm -hmm. within the Bible itself there's these kind of different
0: theological approaches that's a great example Ken yeah like that's I mean the easiest that's a really good example another really easy one to see is like the Psalms are obviously trying to do something different than like first and second chronicles Um, okay. So I'm going to go, I'm going to work through some practical stuff. We just hit one, but again, feel free. I'll try to keep more space for questions, but we're at 344. And I, I said an hour and a half. So we have like a few more minutes to wrap up this class, have a few more questions. So I'm going to try to do that in honor everybody's time. But so if these things are true, what are other things that this means about how we actually read the Bible? So we just said this one, we read the Bible for transformation before we read it for information. Information is important is really good. I believe the gospel narratives are historical. Right? I think that's true. But I'm not reading it for that first. I'm first reading it to encounter Jesus, to have a better image of God. Um here is another one. When we read the Bible and we come to images, texts, moments that contradict the God revealed in Jesus, we wrestle with it to understand how it gets us to Jesus. I don't think that we should so easily try to smash together images that feel like they violate the person revealed in Jesus. One of my favorite stories is um, when um, Jacob, in the Old Testament, who is uh, Joseph, who we talked about dad, basically, not basically, but like, you know, it's a family line. Jacob has this dream where he wrestles with God and gets named Israel, which means one who contends with God. And I love that story because what it does for us is it sets up the kind of faith I think we are supposed to have one that is always wrestling with God and wrestling with how we understand God and wrestling with images of God and wrestling with our theology around God. And I think that we need to be way more comfortable having that kind of wrestling match, because I think what happens is that we get, and it's not our fault. I'm not, nobody here is to blame for any of this, but like, I think we, because of certainty, because of our search for certainty, we study the Bible looking at if we can find clear answers, it will solve all of our problems. And then we experience from smart friends or, or smart thinkers around us, really big questions that challenge our understanding of the Bible and our faith begins to unravel. And I think a lot of us have made the Bible our like source of faith, like as though that it was the, um, like the the, the philosophical turn, is like uh, epistemological source. Like if this is true, then my faith is true, kind of faith. And it and then it gets attacked in a way that's like that's not a scientific argument. That historically didn't happen. That's morally repugnant. And we're like, well, what do we do with it? And if it's certainty that we're looking for, it really spins us. But if it's an invitation to wrestle, and we recognize that false images of God will be in there, and that those have actually been redeemed, then I think it gives us a whole different kind of approach to what the Bible is. It's a book of worship. It's a book of reflection. It's a book of theological truth. Um, and it's a, it's just a different, uh, it's a different way of handling it or orienting ourselves towards the Bible. It's okay to wrestle with it. I think that's actually the invitation that we have. Wrestle away. Okay, sweet. So number one, how do we read the Bible? I think we read it in a way that wrestles with images that contradict Jesus. I think we have to, like I did with Tori in the story at the beginning. Like if I see Tori do something that seems to contradict who I know her to be, I owe her a wrestle. It's not fair for me. Like I just, I owe her a wrestle. And I owe Jesus a wrestle. <laughs> That's a funny phrase. I owe I owe <laughs> my understanding of God the hard work of wrestling with violent images of God because I don't believe that God is violent. And I think that to apply that image to God is a violation of God's character. And I think that's a big deal, right? So I think we have to keep wrestling with it. And and I think, like, as you read the Bible, there will be places that speak to you more directly where you need to do that kind of wrestling. Um, and knowing that God accommodates and uses broken things to accomplish redemption. We read the Bible for transformation. We just talked about that one. Um, And I think this is something that we don't talk about quite enough in the church that we read guided and empowered by the spirit of God. Um, I believe um, that God, the word is God breathed and that it's this like process of God engaging with the world around them. And I think that God, that scripture still stays that way. And that God is doing work in our lives to help us understand how it points to God and how it makes sense of God and that it is worshipful. Um, I don't know always what that means. I think as soon as we start talking about the spirit of God, we're like on the margins of language for me. Um, That's for me personally. I, I, I think that God is doing something in us to help us understand scripture. And I think there's this really beautiful moment in 2 Corinthians where Paul says this. And he's talking about how the, the ancient Israelites understood scripture versus how we get to. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 14, but their minds were made dull. But to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. and It has not yet been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Now I want to pause right there. I think Paul will also say in Corinthians that the cross is the foolishness of God to save us. And so Paul likes to have this conversation about like, that there's something about Jesus on the cross that is very difficult for people to understand, right? Because we want to, like we talked at the very beginning, make God look like a different kind of deity. We want God to work a different way. We want God to look like us. And so it's very hard for us to understand God through Jesus. And it's very hard for us to understand the Bible through Jesus. I think Paul is talking about that. He's like, and you can't, I think this is what he's saying here. It's like, when people read the Old Testament, they don't see it in Jesus, and so there's a it's like it's like there's some kind of blockage there, some kind of veil. The cross isn't beautiful yet, and there's some work that needs to happen for the cross to become a beautiful expression of something. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the Lord is the Spirit, and with the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. There's so much that is like beautifully loaded into this passage, that the spirit helps us see the Bible in Jesus' image more. That the cross is a repugnant image to us. And God does work in us to help us to see it as beautiful. And as we see it as beautiful, we start to understand the biblical narrative. And as we start to understand who God is in the story of the Bible and in the cross, we are transformed through the power of the spirit into the image of Jesus. Right? I think there's this like beautiful thing that's happening in this moment. Um, that is a bit like tricky to talk about. Cause it starts to get, you know, a little spiritual, a little ghostly. Um, when We talk about the Holy spirit, but it's really, really beautiful. And it's, we need to talk about as we talk about how do we read the Bible? Because the Bible is worshipful practice before it is a historical information transfer practice. It is Jesus through his spirit doing something in us. Um, Yeah. Any thoughts about that before I go to the next one?
6: I, I was just going to comment like on that point, Johnny, I think like if we do like believe and have an understanding of that we read the Bible from a place of like filled with the Holy spirit or being led and guided by the Holy spirit. I think like, there's a certain, I don't know, like element of reverence, uh, that should come with reading our Bible where, you know, not necessarily coming to it flippantly, but actually taking preparing like time and space to pray to the Holy spirit, to be led in reading the Bible and guided by the Holy spirit and to read it with that mindset of of knowing that we're reading it in communion with christ and in communion with the holy spirit
0: mm-hmm. yeah i love that ian i don't that's a good challenge to me because i don't do that at all <laughs> that's a good reminder to to have a different kind of posture as i read the bible even um because that's true it's 100 true of the things that we just said here so I'm thankful for that um feel free again to interject, but that leads to this next one, which I wanted to say, which is how do we read the Bible? We read the Bible in community. I think because the Bible is a theological work and we are so first of all, we're social beings. We're in the church. that We read the Bible in community and our conversations around the Bible and our understandings around the Bible and our wrestle with the person of Jesus. All of those things need to happen with other people. Um, Like we've not actually talked as much about like the concept of, of hermeneutics, but like, we do bring, as was said at the beginning, we bring so much to this conversation with us, so many biases, so many wounds, so many traumas, so many just like desires. And wrestling with the Bible in community begins to press against those things. And I believe that God speaks through the spirit in the text to each of us as we gather to discern together. Um, it's one of the reasons that if you've been at misio over the last year, we've really made a focus on activities like Lectio Divina, which is trying to challenge the way we read Bible to make it more worshipful and communal, that we're gonna read it together, we're gonna to listen together, and we're not trying to find the right answer. We're not trying to get certainty. We're not trying to get like a correct understanding. We're trying to do something worshipful here. Uh, and we're gonna do it with one another and try to listen to one another. Like all the Bible was written that way. It, like We have an amazing gift to be able to read it alone because we're like of where we live and because of the, the moment and culture that we live in, but that's not how the Bible is actually written. was written as letters to communities that someone would read and then explain as they were reading it. Not saying that we have to do that. That's kind of what we do on a Sunday in some ways. Um, But it's a beautiful, I think something really powerful worship wise happens as we read it together and reflect together and wrestle together. Um, And then that leads us here. I'll just go to this last one and then we can open up space for just more conversation. Generally, we read the Bible in conversation with our tradition. I think that uh, when I, I, why did I include this one? I think like we come from a long history, a family history that has been having this same wrestle. And we get the benefit of being a part of a conversation that's come long before us. Um, And that's really helpful to me, at least, as like a person who grew up in a really specifically evangelical environment. As soon as I started realizing that like, there was much larger, bigger traditions and that mine was actually a sliver of Christian history. That was very liberating to me. um, To know that not only like Europeans had been wrestling with the Bible, but that there was traditions and understandings and wrestles that had come out of every part of the world. And that I could actually access those things and start to have a conversation with those things. It's kind of like expanding the community to the traditions that have come before us. And I think that's a very beautiful and helpful process, because not only does it challenge the understandings we bring, it also grounds us in the, the the family history that we come from. That we don't have to do this alone, and and we don't just get to invent whatever theological thinking we want. Like we have a conversation partner, uh, whether that's the early church, whether that's even the church just a hundred years ago, or whether that's our neighbors, like that we we are accountable to one another and even the family history and that we get to liberate one another together and shape one another together and find new practices. Like Max, who's in our house church, who's in this call has been offering our house church, more new worshipful practices. Like that's also part of the fun thing about engaging with your tradition is that we've been trying to wrestle with how we engage the Bible for a long time. And so as you bring those into it, you have a much broader tradition of, of wrestling with it, whether it's reflective practices or whether it's like liberation activist practices or whether, you know, there's so, there's so many ways that are like we could be challenged and open. So to summarize, we read the Bible in conversation with a tradition. Uh, we have a beautiful tradition of Christian family history. Like we get to honor that, be a part of that. We read the Bible in community that we are accountable to one another and empowered by one another. And the spirit is at work in a social setting, not just an individual. Um, it's beautiful that it's both, but it's also a social setting that we're empowered together. Um, we read guided and empowered by the spirit that God is at work to reveal more of God's self. This actually kind of comes back to Ian's question about, is there places where God is like still pressing? Like our understanding of God is growing. That's the promise of the spirit being with us. That the spirit testifies to the truth of Jesus, that we should come into deeper, better understandings of who God is. And we read the Bible for transformation before we read it for information. Information's great. There's lots of really amazing historical content in the Bible. So helpful. But we're first reading it for worship before we're reading it for information. So that is that. Um, I'm going to, if it's okay, I'm going to end the slideshow. And um, if I remember how. And then I will use, we are, we only have a few minutes left, but does anybody have any things that we, did I not address anything? Um, any questions that emerge that you'd like to spend some time talking about?
5: Yeah. Um, Johnny, I think like so much of this all makes so much sense that I think I struggle with how it's, so often we interpret the Bible as this divine rule book um, and how even through that, like a lot of harm has been done in our church history, not even far back um, or, or, or is actively currently being done right in, in the name as a Christian. So, I, that's not even a question. I don't know. It's just something that like, I, I think I think about a lot and maybe I'm just trying to travel to, from previous history and and denominations, um, or even same denomination, just different church and just like how, how I, how I keep going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know if anybody else has anything they want to say to that, but like, that's just, that is just true. And it's really sad that the Bible which is this book about God gets used so often as a, as like golden tablets that are like imposing some kind of moral will on people or, or really even then, like as a power play, and how many times have you heard believe this because it's biblical and you're like, but what does that mean? Like I, as I read this, I wrestle with something different. I get to a different place. And so like, but you're still wielding it like a power play over me as opposed to relationally loving me. And that's, I think, that's one reason it feels important to do these kind of settings and have this kind of class because like we need a different way of holding this really beautiful thing that God gave us that doesn't do the exact opposite of what God is revealed in the Bible to me. You know what I mean? Like that's so not cross-shaped to do that with the Bible.
6: I don't know if this like kind of speaks into that same thing. um, But like what I was thinking is like, how you said we read the Bible, like not necessarily for like information as much as it is for like theological understanding. But I think like there's, I don't think this is in contradiction to it, but I think like there's definitely to be said, like something to be said in regards to like reading it with additional like commentary or material or, you know, in community to ensure that you're not misunderstanding the Bible or forming the Bible into your own ideas or ways that it can be manipulated um, to your own understanding or your own, uh, you know, morality or ethics or whatever kind of thing.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, totally.
4: So in addition, Johnny, to you mentioned the Lectio Divina practice, there's also something called Lectio Continuo, which is meant to be, like Ian said, done in community, and it would be a shame to do that uh, by oneself, but I'm sure people do it, but it's it's the continuous reading of scripture for a long period of time, and it's, um, it's very meaningful, so just Hmm. Um, just to do that and see what see what comes from that, and see you know the power that is in both the community and in in the readings themselves. Um, there can be you know meaning in that.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's totally true. I've had a few, I've not done it as often, but I've had a few moments where like a group of uh, like a church group or a house church group would commit to reading like the whole book of Luke or Mark in one sitting, and uh, pretty beautiful moment. Cause it is, again, it's a different way of engaging. Like you're not trying to, you don't have time to like do it the way you normally read the Bible, which is like pick out a bunch of stuff and ask a bunch of questions, which is very powerful and beautiful. You kind of like pulled into the story.
5: I guess a question I would have is um, in terms of like very practical things, what what do you suggest when you come across the passage? I guess some, it, was, it seems like it might be non-trivial to draw a line between some passage and the cross. Like w- w- what sort of practical things do you recommend
0: for that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. I mean, I think, i do think there's good resources like um like ian said there's there's ways to help mm. us do this so you don't have to feel like you're doing it alone like uh, i forgot i was going to mention this in the beginning i quoted from it a handful of times because i wanted to um uh like pub it as a good helpful resources this is a book um super easy to engage called inspired imperfections by uh, greg boyd i used a few quotes from it to like to represent it it's really good it's fun um, it's like a light read and it's greg is wrestling like he starts it basically being like i lost my faith because of the bible and then had to like figure out how to come back from that so i think that's a helpful tools like that are helpful to get the skills down um but i also think i think like a, it's i think it is also okay if you are if you come to a moment in the, in the old testament and say like see it's like I, I i don't have a good answer for this one here we go it's the battle of Jericho and. Uh, the people of Israel walk around the thing, and that's like really cool, and we love to preach on that. What we don't like to preach on it as much is that then they're they're they are supposedly ordered by God to slaughter everybody inside, freaking everybody. I don't think that violates my image of Jesus, and I don't know that I I don't see that I can think of off the top of my head at least a direct moment where somebody explains it to me. Hmm. So then I think you do have some freedom to wrestle with that and say, like, I think this is, God is going to do, God is somehow doing something through this moment. God is somehow accommodating their small understandings. God is somehow redeeming this moment. It's not clear where or how that is answered. So I'm going to do some wrestling and then I'm going to hold whatever I come to with a lot of humility. But what I'm really trying to get to is a better understanding of God. So if it corresponds to me being like, here's this image of God I have and I'm, I, I don't I don't have to hold so fast to the historical answer I'm giving myself. That's not what I'm working on. I'm working on like, how can this possibly stand with a God that is revealed in the cross?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that make sense? Because then it's more like, a, again, it's then you're trying to approach it more like a worshipful way while at the same time you can do some historical work to plug into it to get right answers. But that may take a while. And you may not get to a place where you find that the historical... Answer is like so easy to hold either. Like it's not like people are debating a lot of those things.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. I
0: have a question.
3: Yeah. Um, I know you are throughout. You're saying things. The common phrase is we want a better better image of God. And so, I just am wondering if that. Comes that sounds kind of like I want to cons I want to consume the Bible for my benefit for my knowledge Mm. instead of I was thinking yeah we do want to better understand God but maybe we read scripture so to flip the words around he has a better image in us and maybe oh yeah that's the transformative part of um how
0: we read scripture yeah yeah uh, i love that i
3: don't
0: know i think that's great sandy i think that's a really good way of of saying it i think like that there's that there's a boyd quote that i used where it's, it's similar it's like do you bring your own questions to the text or do you let the text shape you it's the, i think what you just said is a beautiful way of saying that So totally agree. Totally support. All right, everybody. I'm going to do, let's see, like maybe like two more minutes and then we'll start to wrap up because it's 410 and kept everybody for kind of a long time. Um, but feel free if, uh, like this was meant to be, a, you know, hopefully a helpful place to like begin a good conversation about the way we read the Bible. If A lot of additional questions start to emerge. Like feel free to shoot me an email, um, shoot Missio an email, shoot me a text, like, happy to continue having this conversation or gauging, or if like a lot of questions emerge, we'll just do a part two and just keep going.
2: Um, I just had one thing I wanted. Where'd you go? Hi, sorry. Hey. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add something in response to Mark's question that Um, I did a year ago something that was helpful for me like I journal so I have like my list and it's called all the bible qualms and I write about like a list of things that I have issues with the bible and um, a lot of these questions I feel like are not easily answered in one sitting and so it's nice to like look at it over a period of time like years and like come back to it and like after I've read more scripture after I've talked with more people and slowly like massage that out and some are some I feel like have been a little bit more massaged than others that I'm probably going to die with questions and wait till heaven to have them answered but that's just something that I've done like don't know if that helps but just an idea
3: Yeah, I like yeah, that. that. That's a great idea. Hey, Rebecca. The older the the older you get, the more questions you have. Sorry <laughs> to say.
0: <laughs> seems true. All right, everybody. It's four ten. Um, thank you so much for hanging out, and doing this class. Uh, I really love spending time with you and uh, all of our participants from all over the world. Uh, yeah really thankful. Let me just uh, say a quick prayer blessing over you and then we'll go our separate ways. Jesus, thank you for the people in this room. Would you shape in us a clearer, more beautiful image of you? Would you form us into your people, help us to know you, trust you, experience you, and then help us be empowered by the spirit to, to give that image to the world around us, that people might encounter you
6: through your body. So go with these people, lead them in your way,